Well, we are in a new series kicked off last week by Pastor Doug. How many appreciate Pastor Doug being with us? Love uh, Pastor Doug. Just love the work that he's doing and encouraging pastors and what his ministry has meant in my own heart and life and what it continues to mean for our church family. Uh, But we kicked off this series, and the series is called Conflicted, Conflicted. And what the whole series is about is studying Matthew 18 and what Jesus teaches about how the community of believers should relate to one another, in particular as it pertains to conflict, to disagreement, and to sin. If you have not noticed, there is a ton of conflict around us. And if I were to sum up in a word, Jesus' message in Matthew 18, it would be this, that we as the body of believers ought to be counter-cultural. That we shouldn't just be thermostats that reflect the temperature of our world, but we should be thermometers that set the temperature. We should set the temperature so that we can model something boldly different by God's goodness and by God's grace. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. The world that we are living in is marked by conflict and it is happening all around us and it is literally destroying us. You need to look no further than the nightly news and you can see the global conflict in places around the world, including the beloved Holy Land where uh, we have brothers and sisters who are there and I I encourage you to pray for the events that are happening there because God hears the prayers of his people. But how many know we don't need to look around the world to see the amount, the enormous amount of conflict that's happening around us and the devastation that it's calling, causing? We don't, we don't need to look around the world. We can look in our own, within our own borders. Listen to this, these words from former... Senator Ben Sass, former Senator Ben Sass, who's also, by the way, a strong brother in Christ. He's currently heading up uh, University of Florida. He's the president there. But he wrote a book called Them. That's the name of the book, Them. I highly encourage you to read it. It's subtitled, Why We Hate Each Other and How We Can Heal. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? And here's what he says here. When one half of the nation demonizes the other half, Tentacles of resentment reach out and strangle whatever charitable impulses remain in us. We are losing our ability to have compassion and empathy, which renders us unable to show mercy. Listen to what he's saying. This is a brother in Christ who is saying, I'm concerned about what's happening to our nation because we're so embroiled in conflict that we are demonizing each other to the point where we can't show mercy and compassion to one another. By the way, for those of us who are evangelistic, we should be alarmed by this because those who you will reach, you must first love. But what about our workplaces, not just within our, our nation? Listen to this within our, our workplaces. This is a study that was done by the Myers-Briggs company. Some of you may know that name, Myers-Briggs. They do personality research. And, and, and they said this. They, they released a, a, a report, a study, and uh, the headline was this, that time spent on workplace conflicts has doubled since 2008. 
They released this new global study on conflict management at work, and here's what it goes on to say. Currently, managers spend over four hours a week dealing with conflict on average, says John Haxton, head of thought leadership at the Myers-Briggs Company who, who carried out the study. He goes on to say, the more time that an individual spent dealing with conflict at work, the lower their job satisfaction and the less productive they become. Conflict uh, diminishes the effectiveness of teams and reduces the bottom line. So this is showing that conflict is not only having a relational impact, but it's even having an economic impact. But what about our families? Not just our nation, not just the workplace, but what about our families? Well, the Institute for Family Studies says this. They released a groundbreaking uh, research uh, report co-authored by four sociologists, acclaimed sociologists, on the um, uh, impact of family conflict on children. I want you to hear this. Parental conflict is harmful to kids. Now, that's no surprise. However, when it is frequent and heated and hostile, involving verbal insults, raised voices, when parents become physically aggressive, when parents withdraw from an argument or give each other the silent treatment, when the conflict seems to threaten the intactness of the family, it severely affects kids even into adulthood. That the impact of conflict on kids is not limited to the moment. It ends up setting a pattern in their life that is affecting them even into adulthood and some of us are even reflective of that. One last area that we should all be concerned about, the church. How does conflict impact the church? Well, Barner Research Group says this. Barner is a Christian research organization. They released a, uh, an article in, in uh, January of this year. And I just want to read an excerpt from the article. It says this. Conflict takes away the energy and focus of the church from the things that matter most. How can we as Christians honestly bring the gospel to people and to unbelievers when a battle is raging in our own church? Conflict also disheartens the congregation. This makes it difficult to promote the ministry of the church in the community. Who wants to invite their friends to get involved in a church that is fighting internally? Ultimately, the article goes on to say, it is Satan who wins in conflict. He uses it as a tactic to cripple the gospel. Now, why did I share all of these with you? Not just to bore you, not just to give you fun facts that you can use at parties. I share all of this with you because I, I don't think we take conflict seriously enough. I think in some ways we've come to the point where we kind of resign ourselves to the fact the conflict's going to happen. We really don't see it as the enemy that it is. But I want you to know something. I want you to know that not only do you have an enemy of your soul that is constantly trying to embroil you in conflict, that it is one of the primary tools that he uses to distract us from the mission of the gospel, to distract us from the purpose for which Christ has redeemed us, to distract us from glorifying and worshiping Jesus in all things. Now, that was a lot of bad news I gave you. Let me give you some good news, and that is Jesus is the Prince of Peace. 
I mean, thank God for that, that in a conflict world, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he comes to give us his peace so that we not only might be recipients of his peace, but so that we might be peacemakers wherever we go. So how should the Christian respond to conflict? I just want to read one verse from Romans chapter uh, 12. It's verse number 18. We're not going to camp out here. We're going to go to Matthew 18, but let me just read this one verse. Romans 12 and 18 says this concerning our attitudes towards conflict. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I want you to notice a pattern, and we're going to pick this up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. You can turn there with me now. I want you to notice this pattern that the pressure of the Gospel, the focus and the thrust of Scripture is always on us as it pertains to peace. It it always puts the ball in our court. It always places the responsibility in our lap. It it never says that, hey, because you're married to a jerk, you don't have to seek peace. Never says that. Never says because you're working with a group of uh, crazy people that somehow you're exempt from having to be a peacemaker. Some of you wanted to say amen to that. It doesn't say because you're in a church of uh, folks that are uh, different in personality or different in socioeconomic background or different in culture that somehow the, the, the responsibility of peace does not lie with you. No, it always comes back to us. What is my role in bringing peace to an environment? Now, I want you to see this in, 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 uh, in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is dealing with how we should relate to one another, what we should be bringing to the party. But, but it's interesting. I was listening to a talk, an interview, really, uh, that uh, the late, great Tim Keller, a pastor uh, for five decades, did on preaching. And he says to preachers, whenever you're preaching, you should always anticipate objections. And I was thinking, what is the objection to what we're about to read here? What is the objection to all of this call to peace? And the objection, I think, of the non-Christian, if you're not a Christian in here, if you're an unbeliever, if you're suspicious about the whole thing, is if you guys have the Prince of Peace, if you guys are supposed to be peacemakers, why are you so bad at conflict? We got to deal with that. We got to own the fact that so often you can't distinguish between a Christian and a non-Christian when it pertains to conflict. How many would agree with me that Christ makes a difference in a person's life? How many would agree with that? That Christ makes a drastic and a bold difference in a person's life. But where does that show up for you and me? One of the areas where we have an opportunity for that to show up is how we deal with conflict, how we manage conflict in our lives. Now, here's what the message of uh, this particular passage, we're going to look at verse number 7 through 10, is that is that Christians should help build up and not hinder one another's faith. 
We should help to build up and not hinder the faith of others. The way we carry ourselves, if we know conflict is a distraction and a hindrance to the faith of others, we should not seek to to uh, to hinder them, but we should be constantly trying to build up people and to bring peace where there has been conflict. That's what the gospel does. How do we do that? Well, in two ways. The first way is that we don't lead others into sin. Look at verse number seven. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, I'm just going to say this. Whenever you're reading scripture and you hear Jesus use this word, woe, your ears should perk up. This is, this is um, pretty heavy stuff. This is Jesus basically saying that the person who's in violation of what I'm about to say is in danger of eternal punishment. He says, woe. To a person, there is punishment coming. There is eternal judgment that's coming. Now, he gives two woes in one verse. The first woe that he gives is broadly to the world. And what he's referring to here by the world is the fallen world of uh, sinful men and women. Those who have rejected Jesus, those who are not living according to the teachings of the word of God, who are not following the commands of Christ, who are not following the, uh, the wisdom of the gospel. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Now, this is an interesting thing that he is helping us to understand. Uh, one of the things that Jesus wants us to always be mindful of is always be aware of your surroundings. How many have ever told a young driver that? Maybe it's been a teenage son or daughter that, hey, when you get in that car, always be aware of your surroundings. Those who are responsible for safety and security, they live by this, this mantra. Always be so aware of your surroundings. You should always be mindful of the environment that you're in. Jesus is helping his disciples to be mindful of that. That you and I need to understand that we live in a world where there is constant temptation to sin. Let me just make this very, very particular to you and I. Satan is looking to constantly embroil you and I in conflicts because he wants us to draw, he wants to draw us from Christ to sin. He wants us to become so engulfed in conflicts and disagreements that we forget that, oh, oh yeah, I am meant to serve my spouse not be in conflict constantly with them. Oh yeah, I'm meant to be my children's chief intercessory officer, not always in conflict with them. Oh yeah, God placed me in this workplace so that my light may shine, so that men may see my good works and glorify my Father in heaven. How many know that's why you're in your, on your job? How many know that? How many know that's, that's why you're in that neighborhood? So that your light may shine before men. Not that you might be in, in, in constant arguments with your neighbor or with your coworker or with your family. He knows that if he can embroil us in conflict, then he can distract us from Christ and pull us into sin. 
That, that word uh, for temptation is the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal. It means literally a stumbling block or to draw someone away, to, to pull someone away into sin. Satan is constantly trying to pull you away into sin. And depending on your, your personality type, you are a happy participant. How many actually enjoy conflict? Come on, tell the truth and shame the devil. Some of you has, have never met an argument you didn't like. Some of us are so good at arguing, it doesn't matter what side. You pick a side and I'll just take the opposite. Right? And if you are conflict prone, and I understand that there's another sermon for those of you who are conflict avoidant, that sometimes confrontation has to happen, albeit with the fruit of the Spirit, albeit with a focus on the glory of God, but that's another sermon. What I'm preaching today and what the text is referring to today is be on guard. You live in a world where there's going to be constant temptation to sin, constant temptation to be drawn away from Christ, constant temptation is all around you. And it happens all the time. I woke up this morning, me and my wife were talking about something uh, I, I don't even remember anymore. She misheard me. I was offended by that. Next thing you know, we're, we're having uh, uh, a little exchange. It was a loving exchange. It, it didn't last long. It didn't last long. So no need to panic. We kissed and made up quickly. But the point is, is that at any moment it can happen. If I'm not aware of my surroundings and constantly on guard against what the wicked one wants to do in my own heart. Now, Jesus gives a second woe. He goes on and says, it's necessary for temptations to come, but woe to the one. Now he's moved from the world to the one. And everybody say, that one is me. That one is me. I got to focus in on me. Here's he said, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. In other words, Satan is going to constantly be trying to pull you into conflict and confusion, but don't be the source of it. It, it may be all around us. Maybe it's in our culture. Maybe it's in the workplace. You can't control if you live in a chaotic workplace or, or the fact that we live in a fallen world or the fact that we might be around very dramatic or conflictual and controversial people. We can't always control that. We, we live in a world marked by sin, but, but woe to us if it comes through us. In other words, our hearts need to be, Lord, let me not be the one who causes the stumbling. Help me not to be the one who is using my words to tear down someone else. Help me not to be the one who's the stumbling block. Help me to be mindful. You know, one example of this is uh, we've entered into what doctors call cold and flu season. Typically happens around this time, back to school time, kids are sharing germs with one another. Uh, we enter into cold and flu season. And uh, one of the things about cold and flu season is we know the probability of folks getting colds around us is, is pretty high, pretty probable. But nobody wants to be the germ carrier that passes it on to your family or friends. Amen? Nobody wants to be the cause of it. It might be cold and flu season, 
But if I got cold or flu, I, I don't want to pass it on to somebody else. I don't want to be the, the cause of the stumbling. In, in similar fashion, Jesus says, watch your own heart. Guard your own heart. Woe to the one. Temptations are going to come. The world is fallen, but woe to the one through which the temptation comes. And again, I don't want to make light of this because this is severe. How severe? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. Because in verses 8 and 9, we see something else, and that is that we need to lead by removing your own sin. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Listen to these words. Jesus uses figurative language with intensity. He is using figurative language with intensity to drive home how dangerous unchecked sin is in our own heart and how serious we have to be about dealing with the sin in our own lives that causes us and others to stumble and he tells us with the greatest severity that it's far better for you to deal with that now, no matter what the cost is, than for you to enter into hell because you did not deal with the sin that is a stumbling block to you and to others. Now again, this is figurative language. He is not expecting for them to interpret this as let me cut off my limb. But what he is expecting them to understand is the severity of sin and the great lengths we should go to to deal with the sin in our own heart. Now I want you to understand this in, in relation to conflict. Notice what the focus is on. The focus is on me aggressively, intentionally, dealing with my own issues. Now imagine how countercultural that is. Let, let me ask you this. What annoys you more, your sin or the sin of others? What bothers you more? What arouses your anger more, your sin or the sin of others? What do you see more clearly, your brokenness and fallenness or the brokenness and fallenness of others. What Jesus makes very clear here is that we should not be more militant about dealing with the sins of others than we are about dealing with our own sin. It is far easier for me to see how flawed someone else is than to see how flawed I am. But imagine how much conflict would be reduced if all of us, were to do what Jesus says, and that is to say, is my eye offending someone? Is my mouth offending someone? What, what about my, my hands? What, what about my words? Are they offensive? Now, when it comes to ourselves, we like to think of the freedoms we have. 
Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm free. But in Scripture, our freedom is bound by two things. Like, like you, you have freedom on what you eat. You have freedom on what you drink. You have freedom on what you wear. You have freedom on what you say. But that freedom is bound by two things. Number one, a direct command for Christ. If you see a direct command from Christ, that means your freedom is limited by that direct command. So when you read, thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, thou shall not commit adultery, those are direct commands that limit our freedom. I can't go against what Christ has said. But there's a second thing that limits our freedom, and that's a question. And the question is, Will doing this cause my brother or sister to stumble or fall? Again, he already just said to us, woe to the person through which temptation comes. So the question of, should I eat this? Should I drink this? Should I say this? Should I wear this? In part is driven by my desire not to be a stumbling block to my brother. Because ultimately, what I want to do with my brother or sister is to win them to Christ. Does that make sense to anybody? Right? So we're looking for commands, and we're also asking ourselves, man, how can I limit my brother or sister from stumbling? And if that means I need to cut a limb off, if that means I need to stop doing something that I enjoy, but it's causing someone to stumble, it is better for me to cut that off. Now notice, he is not saying that cutting off sin or cutting off some habit or cutting off some relationship is not painful because it will be. But what he is saying is that it's far less painful than hell. That's the comparison here. That it's less painful for me to say, I'm going to cut off something that I know is hindering or hurting my brother or sister. I'd rather cut that off than to hold on to it and lead them and myself into destruction. Friends, we're seeing it all around us. Our inability to live this way is resulting in a conflict culture It's literally destroying families, a conflict culture that's destroying our nation. And as we look around the world, a conflict culture that has many, many casualties around the world. And some may say, who can fix it? And I'm glad you asked that because the answer is Jesus. Jesus has come to give peace. My peace I give to you, he says. Not as the world gives, but he is the prince of peace. And if we are going to be people of peace, it starts by us accepting him as both Savior and Lord. And this is where I'll end today, because a lot of us want him as Savior. Rescue me. That's what Savior means. It means rescue me. But Lord is something entirely different. To be Savior means to rescue. To be Lord means to have authority over. Today, he wants to have authority in our lives. He wants us to be able to say yes and amen to his commands. So I don't know where conflict exists in your life, but I do know this, that 
if you will drink from his cup of grace, if you today will accept the gospel, and everyone needs the gospel, the unbeliever needs the gospel, the believer needs the gospel, the pastor needs the gospel, we all need to be reminded that it's only in Christ, when we depend on Christ, can we bring peace. But when we do, when we step into a situation and we have Christ in our lives, we're not stepping in alone. We're stepping in with the supernatural presence of God at work in and through us. And we can be intercessors praying for peace to come where there's been conflict. And where there's peace, there's flourishing. Where there's peace, the gospel advances. Where there is peace and unity, the gates of hell will not prevail. In your family, on your job, in our church, in our community, and in the world. Amen? Everybody stand all over the church. Today, my prayer for you is that if there is conflict in your life, that you would take it seriously and that we wouldn't just blow it off, but today we would take seriously the conflict that is in our lives and that we would pray, Lord, help me not to be the source of it. And then number two, help me to bring peace where there is. I think, friends, this is a game changer. That when we live this way, we are bringing to the world what it desperately needs. The world desperately needs peace. There are people that are in here today that desperately need peace. And today I want you to know where to find it. It is found in Christ and in Christ alone. If today you need that peace, know that there are going to be leaders here at the front to pray with you. That you might have peace first with God. Because you can't have peace with others if you don't have it with God. And then that that peace with God will flow through your life into your relationships.